the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm going to move this down out of the way so you all can see my face. I'm Nathan Boyette. I'm one of your pastors, and I'm so happy to see you all here this morning. If you're joining us online, it's, it's great to have you here. We'd love to know that you're with us. Reach out, please, and let us know. Well, we're continuing our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we come to the last of the Beatitudes. Many people think that the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is just the Beatitudes. But the intro of the Sermon on the Mount actually continues to verse 16, where we are looking today. You see, the first three Beatitudes describe our deep spiritual need. The middle Beatitude describe how God meets that need as we hunger for righteousness and he satisfies us. Then the next three Beatitudes describe the resulting transformation and actions that God produces in our lives as we hunger for righteousness and are met in the gospel with righteousness. And then this last Beatitude and the accompanying explanation of verses 11 through 16 combine to describe the reaction of the world when a disciple who is living radically different as the Beatitudes call us to live, lives radically different in the world. As they faithfully follow Jesus, the reaction is persecution, animosity. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into our sermon. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us so that we might know the manner in which you have called us to live, and also so that we might know that we are not left to rely on ourselves, but we are graciously given provision in the gospel and in your spirit Thank you so much, Lord. We pray that you would be present now and speak to us through this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. In the movie Pay It Forward, middle school student Trevor is given an assignment by his social studies teacher. The assignment is to come up with an idea that will change the world. Trevor comes up with the idea of paying it forward, doing three acts of kindness to, some, to other people in repayment to an act of kindness that somebody had done to you. It's paying it forward, doing something nice to somebody else without expectation in return. Trevor thinks of this idea, and he thinks that the result will be that kindness will transform the world as people just keep on paying it forward to others. And so he goes about this endeavor to try to bring transformation to the world by doing acts of kindness. He finds a homeless drug addict to be kind to. He does acts of kindness to his teacher, his mom, and he tells all of them to pay it forward. However, in the course of the movie, Trevor goes, grows frustrated because the kind acts he has done doesn't seem to be having an impact. There's no domino effect that's transforming the world. In fact, it doesn't even seem to be impacting the individuals that he has done these acts of kindness to. In the movie, it's sadly not until after Trevor's, uh, Trevor's unfortunate death that we see a massive wave of kindness 
that was unleashed by his idea. In a similar manner, Jesus' disciples are called to have a domino effect on the world. They are to help transform the world by what he has done in their lives and how they have been changed as well. Throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, disciples of Jesus are called to interact with the world. Those who do not know the Lord and are far from God's kingdom are to be where we live and breathe and act. We are called to be a witness to the world, to have a ripple domino effect on the world. But how does the world respond when disciples of Jesus truly live as disciples of Jesus? They res- the world responds in the same way that they responded to Jesus. Animosity, hate, persecution. And so this last beatitude with its accompanying explanation is surprising to us maybe. Jesus says that those who are persecuted for righteousness sake are blessed. They're called to rejoice. What? Rebellious, sinful humanity opposes God and so responds to God and his righteousness with hate, persecution. And we're called to rejoice in that. We're called to be blessed by that. How is that possible? It's possible because this very persecution shows forth our true citizenship and shows forth the reality that we have a reward. What is that? We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have an eternal relationship with God the Father, and the persecution shows that we have that. The implicit command in our verses is that we are to reorient our values, our perspective. Too often the church is concerned with earthly pleasures and gain, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to have an eternal perspective rather than a worldly perspective. We are called to rejoice and be blessed in persecution because the momentary fleeting life that we experience here is just a foretaste of eternity. We can have rejoicing in persecution. We can be blessed in the midst of persecution because we already have the amazing reward of an eternal, everlasting, always improving relationship with God the Father. It's been given to us by our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the idea we're going to unpack today is that in light of God's gracious gift of an eternal relationship with him, let us live lives of imitation of Jesus despite the persecution that will come our ways. In light of God's gracious gift of eternal relationship with him, let us live lives that imitate Jesus, despite the persecution that will come our way. And we're going to unpack this imitation in three points. Righteousness, salt, and light. The first point, righteousness. We are called to imitate Jesus' righteous example in the world. Jesus says in our passage that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake will be blessed. Let me remind you that righteousness here in the Sermon on the Mount can be understood in a couple of ways. Two of them, one, living according to God's standard, living in the manner he created us to live, in a manner that pleases him. Another way is a righteousness from outside of ourselves, a righteousness that is foreign to us, a righteousness that is given to us by God's grace in Jesus's death and resurrection. That's what it means to be persecuted for righteousness sake, those two things. That's why in verse 11, Jesus explains that they are persecuted for his account, for Jesus' sake, in imitating Jesus, in witnessing to the world the fact that the world is not enough. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves. That's why the disciples are persecuted. We don't live, or we don't just suffer for living according to God's righteousness. We suffer persecution by having Jesus as our king. Again and again throughout the Bible, Jesus says that those who hate him will also hate 
his followers. Jesus explains that the prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted for representing God, and in a similar manner, his disciples will be persecuted for representing him. This persecution can take many different forms. It's expanded here in verses 11 to 12 by saying that they will revile you. They will utter all kinds of evil against you. And the word translated here, persecute, can also be translated violently pursue. If righteousness does not attract you, it will repulse you. And the result is that you will hate it and push it away. We see that throughout the world and throughout history in different ways. We in America don't experience persecution quite as intensely as people in the Middle East, India, or China, or North Korea, but we experience it as well. Our witness should cause others to have to make a choice, to force people to come to grips with the reality of the gospel, that you either have to accept Jesus or reject him. Our witness should force people to think about that. We're not persecuted for our own sin. We're not persecuted because we are a jerk. We're not persecuted for our own foolishness. Peter, who experienced a great deal of persecution, says this. He says, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He says, it's not a credit to you when you suffer because of your own sin and foolishness. It's a credit to you when you suffer unjustly. It's a gracious thing, a pleasing thing to God. Righteousness calls us to be a witness for the good of others, for their sake, not merely to be right, not to speak judgment and condemnation to others' lives. That's not what being persecuted for righteousness' sake is. Being persecuted for righteousness' sake is for the good of others. So as the disciples of Jesus, who have the gracious gift of eternal relationship with God, we should imitate Jesus by witnessing to that righteousness which Jesus brings, to witnessing to Jesus. John and Charles Wesley, who you may be familiar with, lived during the early 18th century. They saw a huge revival of Christianity in both England and the colonies, now America, called the First Great Awakening. However, before all of that, even while they were ordained pastors of the Church of England, neither one of them were actually Christians. While young men studying at Oxford, they worked so hard to be Christians. They were so diligent to be known for their good works and their upright character that they earned the nickname the Holy Club. The term that they were known by, the Methodists, was actually a slur, a derogatory term. The young Wesleys, however, despite the good veneer that they had, were not even sure if they were saved. They struggled with grave doubts. They even traveled to America as missionaries to share the gospel broadly with the colonists, the local indigenous people, but they returned to England, believing their lives and their ministry had failed. They saw no fruit. John Wesley wrote of his experience in Georgia, I went to America to convert others, but oh, who shall convert me? God said, challenge accepted, John. And shortly after that, by God's grace, Charles and John came to understand the gracious salvation of God, that it wasn't their own righteousness, it wasn't their good works, it was solely outside of themselves, invading their life by God's grace and transforming them. Formerly, they had trusted in their own righteousness and works, but they now trusted in God's and Jesus' righteousness and works. The result was that their ministry overflowed with fruit. After their conversion, John Wesley traveled over 250,000 miles, preached over 40,000 sermons, 
most of them outside in the fields, despite the weather, to illiterate coal miners and farmhands, seeing a huge revival. His brother Charles Wesley was similar. He traveled widely, preaching extensively. He wrote over 6,000 hymns, most of them written while traveling on horseback. He was overflowing with gratitude and praise for God. God used them hugely in the first great awakening, along with many others, when the Wesley brothers relied on their own testimony, their own witness to how they were righteous, there was no result, there was no fruit. But when they pointed to God and the fact that Jesus brings righteousness, the fruit overflowed. We are called as Christians to imitate Jesus by witnessing to the righteousness and truth that he brings. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ, for Jesus, not for ourselves, not for other earthly things, for Jesus, to bring people to know him and his Father. We all must decide who we will live our lives for, ourselves or our Lord and Savior. But this isn't actually a choice you see, because Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The reality is that we don't have a choice. We have to live for Jesus if we want to be saved and known by him. Do your neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, fellow students know you are a Christian and see your witness for Jesus? Do they see you point to the fact that you have a relationship with God solely by God's grace and Jesus' outside righteousness that invades your lives? Rebecca Manley Pippert, who has two excellent books on evangelism, says, our problem in evangelism is not that we don't have enough information, it's that we don't know how to be ourselves. We forget we are called to be witnesses to what we have seen and known, not to what we don't know. The key on our part is authenticity and obedience, not a doctorate in theology. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to know all the theological information. You need to witness to what God has done in your life, how he's changed you, how he's saved you from your own sins. Jesus unpacks what being his witness is in the two following metaphors of salt and light. John Stott writing on this says, salt and light are both effective commodities. They change the environment into which they are introduced. It may be argued that salt and light have complementary effects. The influence of salt is negative, it hinders bacterial decay. The influence of light is positive, it illumines the darkness. Just so the influence of Christians in society is intended by Jesus to be both negative checking the spread of evil, and positive, promoting the spread of truth and goodness, and especially of the gospel. Let's unpack those two metaphors a little bit more. Second, we, in our passage, we are called to imitate Jesus by being salt. What does this mean? In verse 3, Jesus explains being persecuted for righteousness' sake by saying that you are the salt of the earth. And to understand this better, we need to understand what salt was used for in Jesus' day. First, before refrigeration and chemical preservatives, salt was essential to prevent the decay of meat and vegetables. Jesus is saying that the presence of morally strong, righteous disciples can slow and prevent 
the moral decay of society. But salt also gives flavor to food. Christians are to increase the flavor of life in many ways. We are to be the most joy-filled, life-giving individuals that people encounter during their week. A final use of salt in Jesus' day was during sacrifices. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God's people were instructed to offer their sacrifices with salt. And this salt was to represent their faithfulness and indicated that God's people intended to be faithful to the special call he had placed on them. Giving the salt communicated that their hearts were set on knowing and serving the Lord. All of this is wrapped up in what Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. So as the salt of the earth, Christians are to be in society, preventing moral decay, giving flavor to life, and being a faithful presence for God. However, there's also contained a warning here in Jesus' teaching. In verse 13, he goes on and says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In modern times, the salt we use is stable, and it cannot lose its flavor. It cannot lose its saltiness. But in ancient times, the salt that they used was dug out of the ground as rock, and this salt was mixed together with other minerals and impurities, and water could come through the salt area and wash all the saltiness out so that there remained a rock that looked like salt, but all the salt was gone. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, he's telling his disciples, stay salty. Don't have the necessary essential properties of Christianity washed out of yourself. Don't become the same as the world. We need to retain the important distinction between the church and the world. We need to be salty. How is the church to be distinct or salty? How are we to prevent the moral decay of society and increase the flavor of life? The answer is in the immediate context, in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially in the Beatitudes. If we embrace the Beatitudes, then we will be distinct from this world. We will increase the flavor of life because we will be so radically different from how people operate. The world often lives differently than the Beatitudes and definitely values things other than the Beatitudes' values. But the Beatitudes call the followers of Jesus to value his values and live lives in accordance with his will. It calls us to acknowledge and embrace our poverty of spirit where the world sometimes hides and excuses our poverty of spirit. It calls us to mourn ours and others' sin, where the world sometimes celebrates and embraces sin. It calls us to be humble, where too often the world values arrogance and pride. It calls us to hunger for an outside righteousness, while the world says you are enough, exactly as you are. It calls us to be merciful, where the world is too often quick to judge and condemn others. It calls us to seek purity, holiness, above all else, where the world too often avoids God's way and God's will. The Beatitudes call us to be peacemakers and forgivers, where the world values peace only in conformity with the world's views and values. Can you see how the Beatitudes would cause us to be salt in the world? So as disciples of Jesus who have a gracious gift of eternal relationship with God, we should imitate Jesus by acting as salt. When I was studying this passage, I immediately thought of William Wilberforce, an English politician and devout Christian during the late 18th century. 
during his political career, he fought tirelessly to end slavery because he was a Christian, because he knew that people were created in God's image. He fought for over 20 years, seeing defeat after defeat, being mocked by other Christians and politicians, but he tirelessly fought against the slave trade, which was promoted and propped up by the British Empire. And when finally, after well over 20 years of fighting, he saw the end of slavery, people gave him a standing ovation and celebrated what had happened. A great tragedy is that too often we Christians look just like the world. We've lost our saltiness. We don't prevent moral decay, but look exactly like the surrounding culture. Rates of divorce and premarital sex are the same in and outside of the church. Our financial investments often look the same as the world's. In William Wilberforce's day, Christians supported the slave trade. And in so many other ways, we too often look exactly like the world. God has not called the church to political power and control. That's not how we're going to change the world. In rare instances like William Wilberforce, when we find ourselves in that position, we should use our position for the good of others. But God has called the church to be the salt of the earth, preventing moral decay through acts of goodness, kindness, mercy, social righteousness. And we don't need power to do those things. We don't need power. We need love for those around us. We need acts of mercy and grace, like the pop-up pantry, like Homework Haven, like Winter Relief that is starting this week, and so many other ways. We often think that to change the world, we must do big, dramatic things, but what is really needed is steady, faithful, persevering presence for God, to faithfully live in the community where God has placed you, in the family and workplace that God has given you as a Christian. This faithful, consistent presence, combined with a humble seeking after righteousness, as described in the Beatitudes, can have a huge impact over time in the world. The final way that we are to imitate Jesus as witness is by being light, the light of the world. The metaphor is well familiar with you, to you, I'm sure. In John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In Isaiah 49, Jesus is the light for the nations, which brings God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Again and again, we see that Jesus is the light. Jesus' words here imply that the world is in darkness. Due to sin, the world is in darkness. It's ignorant of God. It does not know who God is, and it does not know the right way to live. That's what's implicit in the fact that Jesus is the light, and we are to be the light as well. Here, Jesus tells his disciples that they are to be the light of the world, Light brings clear sight, revelation. While darkness conceals and makes true knowledge difficult, light reveals and makes true, intimate knowledge possible. Just as there was a warning about salt losing its saltiness, there's also a warning for his disciples here about light and not using it appropriately. Jesus goes on in verses 14 to 15, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. As disciples, we should not hide our light from the world. We are to live on display for the world to see, so that people might see the light of Jesus within us, in our words, in our actions, in our humble repentance and seeking of forgiveness. We shouldn't try to portray it as if we're perfect, but even in our failures, we can be the light 
of the world by showing people that forgiveness is possible, that repentance is good. Jesus explains this in verse 16 when he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. We are supposed to live lives of practical kindness and neighborly love to those around us. We are called to be the light by speaking clear words of gospel truth to a world that is in darkness and ignorance of who God is and how he has saved them. This is what Paul referred to in Ephesians 5 when he wrote, at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So as disciples of Jesus who have the gracious gift of eternal relationship with God, we should imitate Jesus by being the light of the world. When you think of light before electricity was invented, you need to think of the reality that all forms of light came through sacrifice. Candles, oil, fire, all of it consumed things to produce light. The candle consumed itself as it gave light. Oil is burned up as light is shown. The fire consumes the wood as it gives light and warmth. In the same way, we are called to sacrifice ourselves to bring the light of Jesus to others just as Jesus himself sacrificed himself to bring us the light and revelation of who God is in the gospel. In Matthew 20, Jesus was teaching the crowds and his disciples. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave." even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In another place, in Luke 6, Jesus speaking again in a sermon says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We are called to a sacrificial giving of ourselves to others so that they might experience the light of the gospel and salvation. But too often, as Jesus warns in this passage, we hide our light. Why do we hide our light as Christians? Sometimes it's laziness. We don't like the hard work of having to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. Sometimes it's compromise. We think we like and enjoy what the world has to offer, and so we go to those things and compromise our witness and the light that we're supposed to be. Sometimes it's fear. We're afraid of the consequences, the persecution that's very real and will happen when we seek to be a witness for Jesus. Laziness, compromise, fear, other things often cause us to hide the light that we are supposed to shine forth. There's been a drastic, dramatic change in Americans' Christian landscape in the past 20 years. In the U.S. alone, thousands of churches close every year. In 2020, less than 47% of U.S. adults said they belong to a church, down from 70% in 1999. In 2018, those who answered none to a question about religious affiliation accounted for nearly 30% of the U.S. population. By 2030, that percentage of the U.S. population who say they have no religious affiliation will most likely exceed that of evangelical Christians 
or Roman Catholics. The percentage of younger Americans who answered none is even higher. America is fast on its way to only five out of 10 respondents saying they identify as Christian. America, sometimes it seems like God's kingdom is not advancing here, but rather retreating. This could be discouraging, but we should also view it as an opportunity, an opportunity to be a light in a world that is so dark, an opportunity to be used by God to live out that which we as Christians are to be, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, witnessing to God and helping others to know him. We are called to be a witness, to be a light in the world, so let us accept that responsibility. Let us live lives of neighbor love, intentionally building relationships with them so that they come to us when they have needs. And we can joyfully, faithfully share the gospel with them and still remain friends. These things we've been talking about are the exact reason that my wife Hansun and I first went to China as missionaries when we were single young adults. It's why after we got married and started a family, we felt called to continue in ministry and I went to seminary and became a pastor. It's why we came here to Annapolis EP Church almost three years ago. And it's why now I have to share with you all the bittersweet news that I have been called and accepted the call to plant a church in another part of the United States. We've been feeling called to plant a church for a a large time, even in seminary we felt called to do that. And that call just has intensified in the past year. We feel called to plant a church for a couple of reasons. As more and more churches close, America needs new churches that will proclaim the life-giving gospel to the world in communities that don't have enough churches. We also feel called to plant a new church because we want to be part of a missional church that does discipleship that's outward-facing and helps new people who've never heard the gospel hear the gospel and experience life giving transformative discipleship on a weekly basis. And we also feel called to intentionally plant a multi-ethnic church. By 2045, the USA will be majority minority, which that, what that means is that the majority of the population will be minority groups. America needs more churches where people from diverse backgrounds come together united in the gospel. There's a lot more that could be said, but I wanted to share the news with you now so that we could have conversations, we could talk about this. I would love to hear what you guys think and talk with you. And I will be here for still quite a bit of time. We're not leaving tomorrow. We will be here until this summer. And so I would love to meet with you and talk with you. And I want to be sent by you in your prayers to plant this church. If you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've placed your hope in his death and resurrection as saving you from your sins, then you are saved and you are now a beloved child of God. You have that relationship with your Savior, with the Father. And it's not a momentary thing, it's an everlasting, improving thing. We have that eternal reward. And because we already have that relationship, we can live as salt and light in this world with confidence, whatever comes our way. And we see the result in verse 16. It says, let your your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our interaction with the world will lead people to come to know God, which will result in eternal, everlasting praise. This passage begins in persecution, but it ends in praise. And that's another reason why we can endure under persecution and consider ourselves blessed and rejoice, 
It's because in the midst of our persecution, God uses our witness for the sake of others who might never know God if we did not be the witness we are called to be. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much that you have saved us. You, Lord Jesus, came into this earth despite our sorry situation, our rejection of you and your Father, and you died in our place that we might be saved. You, the true light of the world, the one who came to reveal all that was hidden in darkness, to pay all of our sins, to bring us back to the Father, we thank you that you have earned that relationship for us so we don't have to earn it for ourselves. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us as a result, knowing that we are secure in that relationship, to live differently, radically differently in this world. Help, Holy Spirit, the Beatitudes to be applied to our lives so that we are transformed and become salt and light in this world. We pray that this might happen this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and sing? Unfinished that drives us to.